Hello. Despite the Herculean efforts and massive sacrifices of COVID and the success of the vaccination programme, a concerted critique of the NHS seems to be building up in certain quarters. One newspaper that's in the past criticised the health service for failing to modernise is attacking GPs from promoting digital consultations. Another describes the NHS's funding needs as a bottomless pit, despite health spending per capita in the UK being below the average in similar countries. Joining the predictable critiques of NHS managers, the Daily Telegraph has expressed astonishment that more than half of NHS staff are not medically qualified. Today on Health on the Line, I'm speaking with an NHS leader who supports the work of GPs and who's been at the forefront of local efforts to promote vaccination and to deal with ever-growing demands. How does she see the challenges facing primary care now and in the future? New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. So I'm delighted to be joined by Fiona Adamson, who's Chief Executive of Hartlepool and Stockton Health GP Federation, and also co-chair of the NHS Confederation's Primary Care Federation Network. So Fiona, welcome. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, um, as a newcomer to the health service, I have to say I'd not heard of federations, primary care federations or GP federations, they're sometimes called. So tell me what they do. Yeah, so I seem to spend a, quite a large part of my life explaining GP federations. And I was a newcomer to the health service about five years ago, may even be longer. So in order to sort of describe the jigsaw of, of primary care and health care, I always start with, with us as individuals. So I think health should start with us. I'm not a great you know, example of that. But we should be looking after ourselves. And then if we can't look after ourselves anymore, we tend to go to our GP. And we all know our GP. They're on the, you know, the, the corner of many streets in many communities. Um, and as a society, we've, I think, become quite medicalized. So we expect our GP to give us a pill. Um, and if that can't happen, then we turn up at our hospital. And I think you find a, a federation somewhere in between those things. So uh our GP will um, get to know us, we hope, that will provide that continuity of care that people with lots of healthcare conditions need and, and outcomes are better. Uh, all the research shows outcomes are better when a GP knows someone with long-term conditions or a nurse. Um, so if you then come up to the new world of primary care networks, so um, primary care networks came along after federations, and they fit in between our practice and our uh, federation. So, and I love the idea of a primary care network. Um, you know, a, a group of GP practices and other healthcare providers in their community really getting to know the neighbourhood and being able to provide things that actually, you know, where I'm sitting in Durham, what our neighbourhood needs might be different to what one of the uh, villages needs three miles outside of the city. So, a real neighbourhood type approach, but then actually above that, um, you don't want, for example, an urgent care service on every street corner because you'd never find the staff, you wouldn't find the expertise, and that's where you find a federation. So generally, 
we are groups of GP practices, um, usually you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 practices working together as a, a family under one umbrella and doing things at scale that can't be done individually or can't be done a, a, on a smaller footprint. So we tend to be integrated into our local system. We know the council and we work with hospitals and we, we really sort of try and fill that gap between general practice and hospitals. Tell me what can happen in Hotleypool and Stockton because you've got a federation that wouldn't happen if you didn't. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that really spring to mind, um, one of which is, is very current at the moment, and that is about access. You will often find a federation providing seven-day access to general practice appointments. And by that, I don't just mean GPs, but also nurses and, and those people who perhaps need daily nursing care, perhaps they have um, dressings that they need help with or something like that. So you often find a federation providing that seven-day access. Um, and the other thing that you find um, very often and quite growing, I think, this element is um, urgent care. So urgent care or same-day acute care or lots of different names for that. Um, and you find that, and in our instance, ours is open 24-7. That's not unusual. Um, it's GP-led. Again, that's... Um, that's a, a real growing theme. Um, having that doctor on site enables you to do all sorts of things as a team of practitioners. So, And if you think about your sort of average practice, maybe 5,000 or 10,000 patients being looked after, you don't have enough staff to provide that 24-7, 365 days a year. So by taking that pressure away from general practice um, and operating at scale as a federation, then you enable them to do some of that continuity of care that I was was talking about earlier. So one of the things, of course, that, that people outside the health service may be difficult to get their heads around is that primary care is a lot more than GPs. And that's the idea behind primary care networks and also behind federations, really, isn't it? That you're trying to provide a much wider service and, in a sense, only use GPs when GPs are actually necessary. Yeah, and um, one of the things, one of the first messages that really struck home with me when I started working in healthcare was was this idea that we're all more efficient and our, our populations are better looked after if everyone operates at the top of their skill set. So if you have um, a GP really getting to grips with those difficult diagnosis, those um, perhaps complex patients, and actually you have um, not just not just clinically trained people nowadays, but actually you have people who are real specialists in the system. So um, if you're an older person, perhaps living on your own and you have a lot going on, both medically and non-medically, perhaps with your house or your benefits, we operate in a complex world and it's quite difficult to navigate that system. And so around GP practices and primary care networks and federations actually, you often find people like social prescribers or care coordinators, and these people can almost hold the hand of patients and help them navigate the system. Um, and I think you could apply that to um, pharmacy teams and pharmacy technicians. Um, I often say, much to the um, dismay of GPs, that actually a, a GP isn't necessarily an expert in medicine and drugs. Um, you want a pharmacist, actually, who, if something isn't available or something uh, isn't working quite right, you want a pharmacist who really specialises in that to say, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? So this idea that everyone has a, a valued specialism um, that they can bring to the table, and I'm sure we'd all 
love more GPs, but actually we're not going to have more GPs in the next five or 10 years in all likelihood. So we've got to all operate together as a, as a team. And I want to talk more about the, the future of primary care, um, Fiona. But before we do, I think the Federation, your Federation, played a major role in the vaccination program as well. So tell, tell me about that experience. Well, actually, again, I would say sort of up and down the land, federations were, were quietly in the background um, doing things like, so, so, you know, for example, mobilising really quickly. So uh, federations were mobilising vaccination services. Um, if you and I were talking 18 months ago and someone told us that there would even be a vaccine that would be effective against COVID, we'd probably have been, you know, dancing a jig. Um, when the news came along that the vaccine was available, we got it really quickly. And I think that's where a federation can do something again once, interpret the guidance, look at the safety aspects, put together a model um, and mobilise that really quickly. But other federations were doing things like um, sourcing the right staff and making sure that they were recruited and they were trained. Um, you see things like, um, I loved watching, for example, the bus in Bolton. Um, anyone on Twitter can't have missed the bus in Bolton um, and that was one of the real forerunners, no pun intended, um, of taking vaccinations out to communities. And again, we we had a great time um, doing that in, in Hartlepool and Stockton. And we worked really closely with some of our local mosques. Um, they really opened their doors to, to the whole community. Um, and then we started working with our local authorities and some of the voluntary sector um, who really know those communities who have really specific needs and can get overlooked. So we went out to homeless um, shelters. Um, we we had one memorable day when uh, we had a, a great number of people um, turn up, but one of them turned up on a horse and four of them turned up with their dog and um, one of them actually turned up with a snake around his neck. Um, and you need a really good... Um, a really good nursing workforce who will take all this in their stride and, and really help you sort of to to interact with communities i don't i don't suppose dealing with a snake is in anyone's job description but one of the things about that is it has there's a there's two sides to it aren't there Finn? on the one hand it has reminded us that the nhs is although we talk about the nhs being there to provide a service on the basis of need. It's actually there on the, that provides a service on the basis of demand. So we respond to demand, not need, and they're not necessarily the same things, which is one of the debates we're having about waiting lists, people on the hidden waiting lists. Yeah. Um, but also the vaccination program taught us that if we do reach out and we are imaginative, we reach into the community, we can get to those people who might otherwise put things off, not want to uh, address concerns they've got. So... What are the lessons that we can derive from the vaccination program for the wider challenge of addressing health inequalities? For me, it comes back to relationships. And I think that that word covers all sorts of eventualities. So, so by relationships, I mean, um, so being able to talk to the public health teams in the local authority, um, being able to then be pointed in the direction of those people who actually are um, influential in their local community. So whether that's perhaps a Roma community, um, whether that is, as I've described, some of our local mosques. Um, so just using relationships um, 
And I think it would be really easy to go back to our usual silos, particularly when we're all dealing with the demand that you've just described. Um, and I think it's vitally important that we don't, because actually, if you can use those local relationships and that trust that's been created between not just individuals, but actually between um, organisations in a local footprint, then if you can do that for vaccinations, why couldn't you do that for all sorts of other things? I think the other thing is it, it's amazing the speed that we can move at um, when we need to. So, and I think the vaccination programme was a perfect example of that. And I, I do think, um, and I may be slightly biased, I do think federations are really well placed to innovate. And sometimes that needs a little bit of courage. Sometimes it needs experience, um, which often you find in a federation infrastructure, you find people who've come from all over with different experiences. Just tell me about your view of the kind of criticisms of GPs that we're hearing at the moment, and particularly in relation to the use of kind of digital uh, appointments. I've spoken to a number of GPs in the last few days, and I think there's a real sense of almost despair yeah. about that kind of criticism. And also it's, it's, it's now seeping into the behavior of some patients. Yes, it is. And it, it makes me really sad, actually. And, and um, I think we we do need to remember that it is a minority. And, and if you look at things like some of the latest surveys, for example, you'll see it, it's up in the mid 80s, the, the number of patients who who really rate their practice and their GP highly. GPs and nurses are always top of the tree when you look at the professions that the public trust. But actually, when, if you're perhaps a receptionist on the end of a phone and it never stops ringing and the next person's furious because they couldn't get through, that's really hard to remember. Um, so I think I think the, the media coverage is unfortunate, uh, to say the least, and, and rather unfair. I think fundamentally we need to remember that there is more demand, um, more demand for appointments. There are literally more people, um, but actually there are less GPs and that's a really simple equation um, and I think for every person who is um, angry that they can't get to see their GP face to face there are other people like me for example who um, I had a GP appointment last week I probably wouldn't have been able to have it if it hadn't been online um, so if I can do that because it suits my lifestyle hopefully I free up some time for other people who do need to be seen face to face and I think there are obviously there have been moments when it's been difficult to see a GP during the pandemic, but there have been any number of other practices and federation services and primary care network services that, that actually have been open face to face the whole time. Um, and I think it's it's something about balance, but actually when the workforce is really tired and remembering being clapped for on a Thursday night, it, sometimes it's quite difficult to put that in perspective. I mean, I'm sure that you analyze, you know, the data about your pa patients and your population. And, and of course, one of the characteristics of that is that more than half of the people that you serve use the GP very occasionally and want really reassurance often uh, just to be told that the whatever ailment they've got isn't something serious they need to worry about particularly. And those people, I suspect, overwhelmingly, you know, someone like me, someone like you, would be very happy with a digital consultation. And then you've got at the other end of the spectrum, 
people who are coming to the GP surgery almost every week because they have multiple conditions. And sometimes that will be genuinely because they need to see a GP, but often it'll also be just be because, you know, they're lonely, because because in the sense all their problems connect in one way or another. And as you say, people trust GPs. And what in a way the irony is because GPs are popular, everyone wants to see their GP, yeah. regardless <laughs> of whether or not that's the right person to see. Um so that's part of the problem here is that when we talk about what we want from GPs, people want very different kinds of things, don't they? The GP model, if you like, has changed very little over probably decades. So that GP has probably eight or nine minutes to decide, you know, is this, well, at the moment, is this someone that I need to see face to face? And if so, when can I do that? But also, is this someone who has something going on? Um, is this someone who actually, as you describe, uh, you know, it, it's it's Mrs. Smith and, and she does like to keep in touch just for her own reassurance. I think people are getting to understand bo- both um, clinical staff and patients that there is lots of other things that can affect our health. So, you know, if, if you if you go right back up and look at the World Health Organization definition of health, then it's not just the absence of disease. It's actually having a good social health, you know, good mental health, etc. Um, and actually, I could could tell you a, a, a fantastic story from one of the first social prescribing projects that I was involved in. It was what brought me into healthcare, and. Uh, we rolled this service out across 32 practices at once, which was quite a challenge. And it was brand new, it was about four or five years ago, maybe. And um, GPs were quite sceptical. They were nervous that their patients would be passed on to someone who wouldn't necessarily know what to do with them. But we persevered and we had some brilliant people that we recruited for their, their attitude and, and what they wanted to do to help people. And one of those sceptical GPs took me to one side after about nine months and said, do you know, Fiona? I thought that a couple of my patients had died. And I thought, oh, no, that's terrible. He said, no, they haven't died. They just have been sorted out by the social prescriber. (laughs) And what he meant was the prescriber had sort of re-engaged them with life. You know, they'd found them uh, a group that they could attend. They'd found them uh, someone to come and help in the garden. Or, you know, I forget the details now, but the GP was absolutely astonished that, you know, he'd these patients who appeared to be very needy, actually were really happy to um, to have had a different kind of help entirely. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. Which takes me a bit towards where I want to, 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 to take the last bit of our conversation, Fiona, which is the future. Now, in the context of the NHS build and the creation of the I mean, systems already exist, but the putting of those systems into law on the one hand. And on the other hand, we're promised an integration white paper, which I guess is probably going to focus on place level. So the, the, the legislation is about systems. The integration white paper is more likely to be about places. Now, I, I was in a conversation the other day, and somebody used a phrase, uh, but I'm interested in whether you agree this is the vision. But more importantly, how do we get there? So what they said was that we all know what we want. What we want is horizontally integrated, vertically coordinated services, which are incentivized to improve population health and to uh, prevent unnecessary demand. Where would we start? I think we are at a really pivotal 
moment and and I suppose from from my point of view I'm I'm thinking about this in a sort of front door of health way and also starting with which I, I think is always helpful in any system conversation is to start with what patients would want and ask them um, so that that's always a good starting point and it's not always easy to achieve um, so I do think that we need to create really good foundation so that horizontal integration part a lot of that is built on what i would call the front door of health which is actually primary care whether that's a pharmacy a dentist or a doctor um, and i think that's something that many people in the system have struggled to get their heads around have struggled to understand how do you fix the front door of health um, and if you think about 90 percent or so of, of interactions will happen somewhere in primary care, then it would seem to be a really important thing to get right. And I think, you know, coming down to general practice and, and how we're structured and how we respond to the ICS, there is a real opportunity in there to develop those relationships I've talked about, to help people understand what happens, um, to help people understand the other roles and the other things that can be done um, for patients, whether they are clinical or non-clinical. One of the one of the answers lies in one of those words there, and that is place. Um, I think place is a place is generally of a size that perhaps matches a local authority, um, perhaps matches a federation and a group of primary care networks. And I think you can start to build relationships that break down some of those silos. Um, I think you can start to communicate together to patients. I think you can start to talk to local people about what they want and need and what they perhaps struggle with. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if primary care networks were all on first name terms with their local head teachers? And, you know, you can start to think about the wider impact on society of people in school thinking about careers in health and social care and local systems working together to provide the right training for existing staff and to recruit new. So it's almost daunting. There are so many places that you could start. Um, but I think if you start, for example, with something like demand, if you start, for example, with something like uh, local health inequalities, whether that's, you know, in the centre of Manchester or whether that's different in the centre of Bath, et cetera, et cetera. And I think primary care needs to take some responsibility for engaging. So I think this is a two way street. Um, we were quite often heads down, concentrating on the next day or the next 10 minutes. And actually, if we can organise ourselves to do the right things at the right scale um, for the right patients, then then you come back to this everyone operating at the top of their skill set, patients understanding where to go for the right thing, um, people who will follow through and follow up uh, and help people to navigate the system. So you can see how it would all come together. So, Fiona, tell me about how you do your job, because, you know, I've come into the health service and outside and i know i'm on a steep learning curve and i'm you know being highly deferential to everybody i i meet who knows more about health and even more deferential to people who actually provide health services but you have a kind of credibility challenge when you come from uh, outside yet when we look at primary care networks for example there are primary care networks that have ambition from the bottom up in the sense that they really reach out into their communities. They're not satisfied with meeting demand. They want to understand about need. They want to connect with the voluntary sector and other services. 
those same networks will also be ambitious in a kind of horizontal sense. They'll want to do more, to add more services. And they'll be ambitious looking up into the system and wanting to be players within that system. But a lot of primary care networks, for completely understandable reasons, to do with the fact that they've got a pretty limited leadership capacity and they're incredibly busy and that some of the incentives anyway don't align with this, probably have a much, much more modest way of going uh, about things, which is really kind of in the end, meeting the demand that is placed in front of them and maximizing their kind of activity levels. Uh, how did you? How do you, as an outsider, how do you persuade the GP practices that you engage with to be as ambitious as they can be in terms of those three domains of reaching out into the community, widening the services they provide, and seeking to be players within the local system? So, first of all, I think I I, um, I understand that credibility piece. I um, I'm actually a banker by background, and at one time that would make people boo, um, <laughs> but I. <laughs> But I think um, lots of the things that I've learned in my career translate into healthcare because actually they are about um, clarity of purpose. They're about communicating regularly. They're about being honest um, and operating with integrity. They're about being authentic. Um, and I think if you are looking at any organization um, that is trying to achieve something worthwhile, that's that's what you want. So I think the the responsibility for people like me, for federations, for um, clinical commissioning groups now and ICSs in the future, you know, hospitals, all those large organizations that surround practices and networks, it's our responsibility to to give them the space to develop. And that might be by doing practical things. So, you know, that might be by taking away some of the workload. That might be by providing literally more access um, for patients, or it might be by sharing expertise. It might be by taking away some of the administration. I would love to see a world where um, those smaller organizations were supported in the background with infrastructure like a hospital would be. So recruitment and finance and perhaps some quality improvement work. If we could really enable networks to do what they do best, you know, to, to provide the right care and to talk to their patients who trust them and understand them. Um, I think organizations like federations can be really influential in trying to create that space so that they get to do that innovation. They get to provide those extra services um, they get to have the conversations about the pathways that perhaps sometimes go onto the back burner because the demand is so big. So I, I do think it's a turning point. I do think ICSs give us a bit of impetus um, and an opportunity to, you know, to, to start to have those conversations. But of course, they do come at a difficult time because we're dealing with complex demand. We've still got an enormous vaccination program on the go, 75% of which will probably be delivered somewhere in a GP practice near you. Um, so it's, I do feel a sense of excitement, but certainly it's, it's a tough challenge. And I think people sometimes think that federations and primary care networks are alternatives or even in tension with each other. But you know, what I hear is that for a lot of primary care networks, the clinical director role, it's overwhelming. Um, people are finding it onerous. People are walking away from that responsibility because it's just too much. So actually, I guess it would be your view, Fiona, that, that 
that GP federations, by lifting some of that burden, by helping with the finances or the staffing um, or the management, can make primary care networks more viable than they are when there isn't another umbrella organisation to help out. Would that be your view? Yeah, that's definitely my view. And it's been very interesting working with the Confederation just to to actually try and work out how many federations there are. So it can be quite a, a lonely world as a GP federation, but actually we're we're discovering more and more federations. The things that I've learned since I became chair um, from other federations operating, you know, all over the place have been absolutely brilliant that I can then take back to the day job and used to help my practice members and PCN members. There is a lot of good work going on out there. Now, not every area has a federation, but actually the majority certainly do. Um, and many of those who don't, um, I think one of our jobs um, as confederation and also as a general system is to try and help them create those collaborative arrangements um, so that primary care can operate at scale. I think we need to enable those people who have the expertise to do what they do best. And I completely take your point about clinical directors being very much overwhelmed. They've become almost all things to all people. And I think we need to get away from that and and let them do what they signed up for. Let them achieve things like have been achieved in in Fleetwood, for example, which I find a really inspiring um, example of what, what networks can do. Well, Fiona, it's been fantastic uh, talking with you. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with you in your uh, role uh, as co-chair of the Confederation's Primary Care Federation Network. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. And save the date for NHS Comfort Expo, the premier event in the health and care calendar, taking place on the 15th and 16th of June 2022 in Liverpool.